Mauri ora ki te whare, e ngā mana, e ngā reo, e ngā waka, e ngā maunga, e ngā awa, e ngā mate, e ngā iwi, hurinoa i te whenua nei. No mai, haere mai ki te taurima o Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Welcome to this New Zealand Festival of the Arts Writers Programme event. My name is Claire Maybe and I'm the Programme Curator. I'm very happy to introduce Kinley to you tonight. Kinley Salmon is a New Zealand economist and writer now working for The Economist magazine as a staff writer. He has worked for the consultancy McKinsey & Company in London on education and economic development and as an economist in finance, competitiveness and innovation practice of the World Bank in Washington, D.C. He holds degrees from the University of Cambridge and Harvard University and is the author of Jobs, Robots and Us, Why the Future of Work in New Zealand is in Our Hands, about the impact of automation on jobs and our way of life in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Please welcome Kinley to the stage. Oh, kia ora. Thank you, uh, everyone, for coming along tonight. Um, I really appreciate it. So I just wanted to start by setting the scene a little bit. And I imagine that some of you have seen these kinds of headlines. Invasion of the robot workers. Uh, the robots are coming. Is your job safe? Half of jobs at risk of automation, will you lose yours? And robots threaten millions of jobs. Uh, and then perhaps most strikingly, rise of the machines, robots set to take over in bed. So I know with everything that's happening in the world, there may be uh, a number of things on people's minds, but I still think in that context uh, that these are a pretty scary bunch of headlines, perhaps with the exception of that last one. Um, still, still also scary, perhaps, yes. Um, and, and actually overseas, some of the claims, these are all from New Zealand websites, but some of the claims overseas are even more striking. So Vivek Wadwa, who's a, a top 100 global thinker according to Foreign Policy magazine, has said that 80 to 90% of all the jobs in the United States will be automated within the next 10 to 15 years. That's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. Uh, but to me, something else really stands out about these headlines, and that is that the robots seem to be doing it all on their own. Uh, they are the ones coming for us. There seems to be little human agency in all of this, little role for us to decide what we might want to have happen and how we might want to interact with these robots. It all sounds a bit inevitable. And the more I read about this so-called jobpocalypse, the closer to home it felt. So I grew up in Nelson in the 1990s, and Nelson is still very much home to me. And every time I come back to New Zealand, and I see friends from school and from university, from soccer clubs, uh, and it strikes me uh, rather clearly that when we read about half of New Zealand's jobs being automated away within perhaps 10 or 20 years, that scary jobless future is both my future as a young New Zealander, but also the future of those schoolmates, my siblings, indeed of every young New Zealander. And to be blunt, it could often sound like we're screwed and there's nothing we can do about it. I'm not the only one worried in New Zealand. So recent research by the Productivity Commission suggests that New Zealanders are much less positive about the effects of automation and new technologies on our economy and society than people in most European countries. And so it was in this context that I wrote Jobs, Robots and Us. I wanted to take a long, hard look at what the reality of automation and technological change might really be in New Zealand. Would it really be that bad? And perhaps more importantly, I wanted to see whether there was anything we could do 
to try to make the future a little better than these rather scary predictions suggest. So I'm going to argue two things today in response to this kind of set of questions. The first is that automation and job losses are not quite as scary and definitely not as fast as we're often told. But things are going to change, and that, I think, won't be easy. What we do at work is likely to change, as well as what kinds of work we do. But second, and I think more importantly, the kind of future of work we get in New Zealand depends deeply on the choices that we make to shape that future today, both as individuals, through businesses, through iwi, and also, of course, and importantly, through our government. I believe there's a huge amount that we can do to shape the future of work in New Zealand, but I also think it's really critical that we start debating and doing that today. That's because it won't be easy. I think there really are big challenges ahead. And it's secondly because I think there's a very real danger that if we don't proactively try to shape this future and instead just sort of drift into it, we could end up in a world of much greater inequality, uh, where more people struggle to find decent and secure work, and many end up stuck on the couch at home or worse. In short, I think we have a window of opportunity, and we urgently need to use it. So to see how we can shape what happens in the future of work, we need to take a closer look at what innovation really is. We hear a lot about innovation. It's a very popular word to throw around, but it's often used in a very general way. Uh, and of course, there is actually more than one type of technological innovation. And what's important about that is that each type tends to have a different impact on employment and on job prospects for people. I think we also need to remember, as a recent Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Romer said, that technological change is not like the weather. Instead, it's something that we can influence and control. It doesn't just happen to us randomly. So let me talk about three types of innovation. The first is efficiency innovation. This is the kind of innovation that helps us to make and sell a product we already have, but to do it more efficiently, perhaps using fewer workers. So a good example of this in a New Zealand context is the warehouse. So what the warehouse did was it managed to sell similar products, uh, but at lower prices by using a big box retail model. That had its advantages. People benefited from those lower prices. But in many cases, it often tended to eliminate jobs as well. There's a second type of innovation then, which is sustaining innovation. And these are innovations that are basically uh, an upgrade of a previous product. So think about what happens when Apple comes out with a new version of the iPhone. Not even the most enthusiastic Apple fans keep both versions. They get the new one and get rid of the old one. And what that means for workers is that people who'd been employed in making or selling or developing apps uh, for that uh, previous version of the iPhone gradually transition to doing those same things for the new version. That helps keep people in jobs. They continue to have their employment. Uh, but it doesn't tend to create a, create a whole lot of new jobs. Um, so that's another important sort of innovation. But again, it doesn't give us uh, an employment boost per se. So the third type of innovation is market-creating innovation. And these are innovations that create whole new markets of products that we simply didn't buy at all before, genuinely new things that we might not have thought to have. And for this reason, they tend to have the best chance at creating uh, a new kinds of employment and new jobs. So the personal computer, or laptops, uh, for example, created 15.8 million net new jobs in the United States. That's even factoring in those that were lost. Uh, and that's because, in part, it wasn't really a direct replacement for something else. We didn't switch out and get computers. It was a whole new kind of consumption. The invention of television was similar. 
And in both cases, there were suddenly a whole new set of jobs that didn't exist before. Think of computer scientists or television graphics designers for television. So the thing to remember about this kind of innovation is it's the most likely to generate new jobs. Now, I want to be clear that all of these kinds of innovations do have benefits, but if we want to keep people in work in New Zealand over the long term, we need to think much more about the balance between them. And I think at the moment we don't pay much attention to that at all. The good news is there's lots that we can do to influence this balance. One way we, it can be influenced is through how the state in New Zealand spends its money on research and development and commercialization of new technologies, which it does do quite a lot of. And state research can be really important. So the internet, GPS, and fracking are just three examples of major technologies that have been developed primarily through state funding, in this case, mostly in the US. Yet in New Zealand, most of the innovation that we support through our state system tends to be efficiency innovation, things like automating grape picking or providing greater automation on our forestry services. I think that raises a real question for the future, is whether when we're using state and public money to support innovation, we should be thinking more about whether it can support employment rather than just uh, do so more efficiently. That can still have its benefits, of course, making things safer and so on, but I think we're missing a trick by forgetting about the employment impacts of that spending. Now, of course, the state uh, is only one part of the innovation system. The private sector is much more important in most countries. And private sector innovators mostly want to make money. That's fair enough. And what that gives us, though, sometimes is innovations that there's a high profit for. So we have drugs for erectile dysfunction and male pattern baldness, uh, but we don't have vaccines for malaria or HIV. It's basically because providing drugs for the former is much more profitable than the latter. But of course, what's profitable to invent in the long run isn't decided in a vacuum. The policy environment that government creates really matters. Think about climate change. The price of carbon in New Zealand is dramatically below the actual cost of carbon uh, in terms of rising sea levels and heat waves, both to New Zealanders and to the rest of the world. And as a result, the profit that can be made in the private sector by inventing something that helps us to do our regular economic activity with less carbon emissions is much lower than it should be. That just isn't as profitable as it should be. And the trouble is that it then often pays off better to invest in reducing the need for workers rather than reducing the need for emitting carbon. And that's precisely because we don't have a realistic price on carbon. And you can see this if you just go down to Wellington Airport. We've got automatic check-in kiosks, and a huge chunk of many flights, particularly international ones, are flown on autopilot. And yet we've made very, very little progress on flying without emitting large amounts of carbon. Now, we often forget that for new technologies to affect us at work, these technologies need to make it out of the laboratory, into businesses across New Zealand, and move into widespread and productive use. And again, we've got a great deal of influence over how how quickly and for which technologies that happens. But if there's one lesson from the history of the adoption of technology globally uh, that I think we need to remember, it's a pretty simple one. And that is that it often takes a bloody long time. All the news about driverless cars that we've seen in recent years can feel a bit like it's come out of nowhere. But it turns out that the first driverless car was nipping around a busy Parisian motorway back in 1994. I was similarly amazed to find that fully automated milking sheds have been commercially available since the early 1990s. 
Yet today in New Zealand, only 0.2% of New Zealand dairy farmers use them. That's about 20 dairy farms in total. Now, even desperately needing a new technology doesn't guarantee that we can rapidly commercialize and adopt it. Charles Fritz created the world's first solar panel. Indeed, his first solar panel was on a roof in New York in 1884. Yet today, about 136 years later, solar is about 1.6% of global energy production. Now, you might be thinking, fair enough, but surely the adoption of technology is at least speeding up. It may have taken a long time back then, but now we're really getting going. But the think tank McKinsey Global Institute had a pretty close look at this and concluded pretty bluntly, and I quote directly, there is no evidence that technological adoption has yet accelerated over the last 60 years. So why is it so difficult to adopt technologies? One of the reasons it's hard is that using new technologies requires a sort of tacit knowledge or know-how to actually use it properly. Technology is just an answer to a question of how to do something. And how do you do it? Well, you do it by using tools, by following procedures, processes, protocols, recipes, that kind of thing. But in order to implement technology, you have to mix those tools and those procedures with know-how. And know-how is really something that exists only in brains. What do you do when your tooth hurts? Do you search the internet for websites about dental surgery and go out and buy some tools, follow the recipe online and fix it yourself? Or do you go to the dentist? What the dentist has is tacit knowledge about how to actually do that surgery in an effective and safe way. And that problem of how to use tools, how to use new technologies effectively, is the same challenge we have when trying to adopt other things as well. That tacit knowledge and know-how is hard to get. And then it, once you have it, you can use those technologies effectively. But when you don't have it, it's much, much more difficult. More problematically, modern production requires massive teams of people with deep and specialized know-how. And the trouble is that transferring that know-how from one brain to another is pretty difficult to do. It tends to happen most between people who are in close and prolonged proximity. So a good example of this is a company called Fairchild Semiconductor Corporation. You may not have heard of it, but it was one of the first major technology companies in San Francisco. It spawned hundreds of other businesses uh, that established Silicon Valley as a world-leading technology hub, you know, through dealing with suppliers, through offshoots from people who'd worked there, other businesses were born. And those combined progeny, if you like, today are worth $2 trillion. But they all had the advantage of that proximity to the know-how initially in Fairchild Semiconductor Corporation. Now, what does this have to do with New Zealand? Well, that's all part of why in New Zealand we struggle with technology adoption. We are isolated, relatively speaking, and contrary to what we tell ourselves quite often, we're not particularly connected to the rest of the world economically. If you look at our share of exports as a part of GDP or the amount of foreign investment we get, it's pretty low relative to what most rich countries do. And that makes it quite a bit harder for us to take advantage of some of those new technologies that are out there. Now, despite all this, strangely, the vast majority of studies that claim as much as half of our jobs are at high risk of being automated, most of those studies simply ignore the question entirely of how long it might take for technologies to be actually adopted. They focus instead on what is technically possible. And that usually means that a machine somewhere in a well-resourced laboratory could do it. What it does not mean is that machines can do it at a cost that is competitive with alternatives, nor that people will want to use that technology themselves, 
nor that regulators will allow it, nor that entrenched interests can be overcome, which is a particular problem in the case of solar. In my view, though, ignoring the question of cost is perhaps the worst omission. Because put differently, what these studies are really saying is that all these jobs would be at high risk of automation if cost were no object. And that is a pretty heroic assumption. If cost were no object, quite a lot of things would look very different uh, in this world. These studies also assume that every technology out there will reach widespread usage, like the internet or mobile phones have. But some technologies don't ever make it to wide-scale use. So think of the Segway, which, while technically capable, one could say, of eliminating the need for walking, uh, it really remains a domain of overheating tourists in European cities. That there really is a range of things we can do to affect the adoption of technology in New Zealand, to speed it up, or even to slow it down, and to affect the kinds of technology that we get here in New Zealand. So, for example, studies have shown very clearly that the arrival of immigrants from, uh, with exposure to advanced new technologies significantly speeds up the adoption of those technologies in the country they move to. And it also gives a pretty substantial boost to productivity. Uh, regulation also makes a really big difference. So the pizza chain Domino's, they chose New Zealand to deliver the first ever pizza by drone. I'm told it was a cranberry and chicken uh, that they went for for the inaugural occasion. Uh, and they said that they did this uh, because New Zealand, and I quote directly, had the most forward-thinking aviation regulations. And I think this question of regulation uh, is going to show up pretty majorly in thing for things like driverless cars. Much is going to depend on what regulators choose to do. And what regulators choose to do is, of course, partly a function of what people in a democracy want them to do. The last thing I'd mention is that another big factor on adoption is the way we treat in our tax system workers, or labor in economic terms, and capital. And that has really significant implications. Because in many cases, including in New Zealand, capital, the investment in machines, often gets an easier ride from the taxman. So I spoke to Darren Asimoglu, an economist at MIT, for this book. And he's been writing about how these distortions in our tax system could actually lead to what he calls socially excessive automation, whereby automating more actually makes us poorer collectively than we might have been if we'd automated less. And the way that can still happen, of course, is because the tax incentives push us in that way, which could be disadvantage, a disadvantage for us. So now's also a good time to take stock, because we're seven years past the first major study that claimed that almost 50% of work was at high risk of automation within 10 or 20 years. And yet there really is very little sign of it. Sometimes I think we forget to look in the obvious places, like at the unemployment rate. So today, sadly, we are in a moment of economic trouble caused by this rather awful coronavirus. But the broad trends in unemployment are still clear. So last year, unemployment was at its lowest in a decade in New Zealand. It was at its lowest in 43 years in Canada at its lowest in 50 years in the United States of America. And even in Brexit Britain, unemployment was at its lowest level since 1975. And not only is unemployment historically low, but more people, and in particular more women, are in the workforce in New Zealand and in many rich countries than ever before, making those low unemployment figures even more striking. Last year, Statistics New Zealand said that never before in history have more New Zealanders been in work than at that point in time. 
still, you might be thinking, well, we may be in work, but surely we are rapidly changing occupations because technologies are forcing us out of one uh, kind of job into another as automation happens. But again, a study in the US found that fewer people are changing occupation today than at any point since their data began in 1850. But recent research by the Productivity Commission has found the same trend here. Their data only goes back to the 1990s, but workers are changing occupation less frequently in New Zealand uh, than they did back in the 90s, and the same trend also holds in Australia. Technology and automation should also mean that productivity, how much a worker can produce per hour, should be rapidly increasing. After all, automation means that you know, we can produce more things with fewer people. Yet productivity growth in New Zealand and across the OECD, the rich world, is at close to its lowest rates of growth since the 1960s. And in New Zealand, it is particularly low. So I think it's important to be clear that on each of these measures, if robots were arriving or about to arrive to take over vast swathes of our work, we would expect to see the exact opposite. High unemployment, low labor force participation, skyrocketing productivity, and people having to constantly change job to keep up. And New Zealand's experience of automation and artificial intelligence is also likely to be different to countries we often compare ourselves to. Studies have suggested that New Zealand is in fact one of the least automatable rich countries around. That's in large part because we've got less manufacturing than most rich countries and much more tourism and agriculture. Now, this of course is a double-edged sword. We may avoid some of the job losses, but we also risk missing out on productivity gains and the wealth that that can bring. Now, serious change, despite everything I've just said, will come eventually. But the message here is that if we start now, we do still have some time to shape the future that we're heading into. And I think it's also important to recognize that we shouldn't only think of automation as a problem or as a, a risk to workers. The picture is a bit more nuanced than that. It is, of course, true that automation can really hurt work workers. That can be extremely hard for individuals and communities, and I think we've seen already in many towns in New Zealand in the past just how difficult that can be. Finding a new job, retraining, going through a period of unemployment is all very painful. But there is some good news amongst uh, what happens when there's automation as well. So new technologies, including automation, they help make us more productive, and that makes us wealthier. And of course, being wealthier, uh, we can afford to buy more products, and the automation itself makes those products cheaper. And so as we buy more of those things, we also create jobs because someone has to still participate in much of that production process. So an example can help sharpen this up because even in the same sector that has faced automation, you can see employment continuing for quite some time even as what's required to do one piece of production is automated. So when 98% of the process for weaving cloth was automated in the 1800s, employment actually grew in that sector for about another 100 years. And that's because people who previously only had a couple of pairs of clothes bought far more thanks to the cheaper prices that were available. And that, in turn, boosted employment in the sector, even though for one piece of cloth, far fewer workers were needed. And we've seen the re you know, a similar trend uh, recently as automation technologies have occurred in banking, in retail, and in law firms. Now, of course, this effect doesn't last forever. And at that point, there's a real question of, well, what can workers do? But new technologies also create whole new jobs for humans to do. So think of things like app developer, data scientist, artificial intelligence system trainer, offshore wind farm engineer. 
These kinds of new jobs are what market-creating innovation that I mentioned earlier can deliver. Now, of course, shifting to new jobs is not easy, but we have done so before in New Zealand. So in 1901, fully 40% of the working population in New Zealand worked in the primary industries, mainly in agriculture and forestry. Uh, but then by the 1970s, far more people worked in manufacturing than in the primary industries. And then fast forward to 2006, and manufacturing was back down to about 12% of the workforce. And the service sector had grown dramatically to take up the slack. And that's where most New Zealanders work today. So does this all mean, this somewhat reassuring message I've given, that we should just chill out about the future of work and forget about it? I would say absolutely not. Because those major transitions that we've been through in New Zealand before were not at all easy. They did create spikes in unemployment. They did create real difficulty for families and often forced people to move town up sticks and find work somewhere else. And critically in New Zealand throughout our history, albeit imperfectly, we have often taken proactive steps from widening education to improving our social safety nets to make those transitions a little bit less painful and to shape the future. And I would argue that if we don't do something very similar this time, and perhaps I suspect even more significant, there are very real dangers. We could end up with rapidly rising inequality, a hollowing out of the middle class going with that, and a struggle for even insecure and unsatisfying work. And in New Zealand, we've already seen substantial declines in the labour share of income. That's the amount that workers take home from the profits of a firm. And there's some pretty good evidence that technological change is partly to blame for that. But there is also, I think, clear evidence that the policy choices that we've made in New Zealand have hurt workers and the amount that they take home from the firm. The rise of the gig economy is also raising questions for regulators and unions about how you can protect workers' rights while also preserving some of the benefits of flexibility and choice that the gig economy can bring. And we can already see that New Zealanders are concerned about some of these issues. So a recent survey has shown that Kiwis who earn less than 50000 a year are more likely to think, substantially more likely to think, that robots are stealing our jobs than Kiwis who earn over 100000 a year uh, to think that. And I think that gives a sense for the risks that we could be running here of seeing a greater division in society as technological change brings benefits to some but problems for others. So even if we do take proactive steps to shape the future, as I've been arguing for, there does kind of remain a big question of what kind of positive future should we be trying to shape New Zealand towards? Uh, because there's really a whole range of possible futures out there, in my view. And these go, in some sense, on a spectrum from working about as much as we do today to perhaps working quite a lot less. Do we want to keep an economy that's based on high employment, economic growth, or could there be an alternative future out there in which we could work much less and perhaps even be more or at least as satisfied with life as we are today? So in Jobs, Robots and Us, I sketch out two alternative futures on this spectrum that I think we could aim for in New Zealand. Both are fairly high-tech worlds. They're at least 25 years from now. And I try to kind of give a sense of these worlds by writing a couple of fictional or imagined stories. The first is of a story actually living here in Wellington, a couple called Paul and Nati are living in Miramar. And Paul works for Weta Digital. At this point in time, he's now doing special effects, not so much for Hollywood, but for Bollywood films. Um, Natia is a doctor. She's in a, something called a slow medicine cooperative that gives deliberately longer appointments and visits people even when they aren't sick. Uh, and their kids have a full-time and relatively well-paid house helper and tutor. 
And despite chatting to people over holograms and living in a house that's wired up like NASA HQ, their world is still one of high employment. People still work long hours and jobs have grown in creative and innovative sectors and in personalized service and care sectors like medicine. So I firmly believe that even with technological change and automation, we could live in a, new, uh, a world like that in New Zealand. But I do think that creating it will be hard. And I see in particular six big challenges to getting there. The first is something that's talked about quite a bit, and that is, I think, readying the education system to both retrain people when it's needed, but also to give everyone uh, early in life a good chance at the kind of education um, that they would need for a job in this kind of an economy. I'd just say that I think a good place to start with that would be actually making sure that New Zealand's pretty good curriculum when it comes to issues of the future of work is actually implemented in schools. Because there's currently no evidence of teaching the key competencies in the curriculum in 28% of New Zealand schools, according to research from the Productivity Commission. I thought that was pretty extraordinary. We also need, in New Zealand, sound macroeconomic management to help make sure people have the kind of uh, money in their pocket and the macroeconomic environment that allows them to keep buying things that we've produced in this economy. But I want to leave those two issues just to the side for today and touch on the other four because I think they're too often forgotten in a discussion on the future of work. And so the first is I think we need to push our innovators and our researchers, both public and privately funded, to focus on developing and adopting in from abroad technologies into New Zealand that create jobs, not just eliminate them. In the terms I used earlier, we need to get the balance right between market-creating innovations and efficiency innovations. The second thing I think we need to do, and I think this really matters in particular for Auckland, but is a problem across the country, is that we need people to physically get to work. Because the trend is that the higher paid and higher skilled jobs all across the world are concentrated in cities. And if we want a future in which most people can access those good quality, better paid jobs, they need to be able to physically get there. Uh, and if you look at Auckland today and commuter pain indices, it comes out below cities like Hong Kong or New York, uh, places that are in many ways much more economically significant and productive than Auckland, um, but where commuting is much easier. So I think we really do need to bring into focus in discussions about the future of work, dealing with affordable housing and decent public transport. Uh, without that, there is this real risk of a two-speed economy where some people who can access those jobs get them and others who just can't actually get there are stuck uh, with much less uh, promising prospects. The third thing I think we need to do is to fix our welfare system or to improve it, to support people through the transitions uh, that they're likely to face and also to give every Kiwi in life a good start so they can get, again, a job in this new economy. And we can already see in New Zealand that there are real difficulties with some people having access to that good start in life, that education system, that would give them a chance. And the three countries in the world where public are most positive about automation and artificial intelligence are Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands. And I really don't think it's a coincidence that those states have strong welfare provision. Denmark, in particular, has a system of which they call flex security, and that provides very high levels of income support for those out of work, and lots and lots of help for retraining and finding a new job. But they also make it relatively easy for employers to get rid of workers. What that does is it provides some security for workers, but it also means that businesses can adopt technologies relatively easily. And so I think that's something that could be looked at in New Zealand as well. Currently here, we have much weaker income support for people out of work. And it's notable that when people lose their job in New Zealand, 
they do tend to find another job, on average, in less than a year. But the pay cut that they take in that new job is far larger than it is in almost any other rich country. And so we don't do a particularly good job at getting people into something that would build on the skills that they already have or reskilling them for a well-paid job. The last thing I want to talk about as a challenge is what I tend to call the big green elephant in the room. Because the hard lesson of economics and the environment is the following. Throughout history, the more stuff that we have produced, the more environmental damage we have done, most notably to the climate. And again, a New Zealander in which every worker produces more per hour, thanks to advanced technology, and in which the vast majority of people still work full time, that New Zealand is going to produce dramatically more stuff. Our GDP is going to be much higher. Now that, of course, has big advantages. But if we can't afford, if we can't figure out how to avoid our emissions increasing along with our GDP, our future of work in that scenario could be hot, flooded, and unstable. Now, these six challenges, I don't think, are insurmountable. And in the book, I lay out quite a few steps I think we could take to help us get there, from putting a real price on carbon. And I just note that the OECD says, at the current rate of increase of carbon prices, collectively in the OECD, we'll hit a realistic price on carbon by about 2095. So we are way off. I think we also should look at rebalancing our tax treatment of capital and labor. We need to strengthen our welfare system for the different kind of challenge it's going to face. And I very much think we need to get serious about affordable housing and public transport if we want most people to be able to access the good jobs which are more likely to be located in major cities. And so we clearly aren't going to get any of those things without real effort and without starting now. But before I end, I want to just say that I think there is another broad future out there that we could aim for. And that's a future in which we work considerably less. I explore this through the story of Rachel and Way's lives in a futuristic Nelson. Neither of them work, both receive a universal basic income, and were given what I termed a gift portfolio of shares on their 18th birthday, funded by high taxes on the productive economy. And those stocks and shares help them throughout their life. In this world, robots don't quite do everything. There are still psychotherapists, caregivers, uh, and of course there would still be politicians, I think we'd have to assume. Um, but most people don't do very much work. And the real challenge in that kind of imagined world is to find some sort of meaning and purpose that isn't connected to work, that's outside of work, excuse me. Now, for many of the reasons I've already mentioned today, I don't think that technology is going to force us into that kind of world anytime soon. But I do think that if that was what we collectively thought the good life looked like, there are things we could do to try and hasten uh, our society in that direction. Uh, from state investment, as I discussed earlier, pushing for more automation, uh, to throwing open our doors in a regulatory sense at least, to big technology companies offering things like driverless cars, drones, and robots. But of course, even if we did manage to hasten automation in that direction, to take on quite a lot of the tasks we do today, yeah, 25 years down the track, without a job, people still need an income. And finding a way to redistribute income, perhaps through a universal basic income or a set of gift shares, would be imperative. Unfortunately, I think any objective reading of recent history is that playing Robin Hood in this way is very, very difficult. Uh, but of course, work today really isn't just about getting an income. It's also, at its best at least, a source of social connection, of meaning, and of purpose in life. And for a world like Rachel and Ways to succeed, we would need to find other sources of meaning. That might come through volunteering, uh, through community and civic engagement, or through family life. 
But I think that would be a really substantial challenge and one that would, of course, be partly a task for government to help with, but perhaps more so a task for civil society and our communities, as well as as individuals and families, to find something to fill in what would be a substantial gap in most people's lives. Now, that future of Rachel and Ways is just an archetype. There are less radical versions of some world like that in which we could work less than we do today. For example, three-day working weeks, or retiring perhaps at age 50. Now, it may seem that the idea, particularly in amidst current political discussions, that we might simply collectively choose to help a large chunk of the population to not work at all and just live off an income from the state. That might sound a little bit crazy. But I think we should remember that we've in fact already done exactly that in New Zealand before. So in 1938, the first Labour government introduced a universal income for everyone over the age of 65. Today we call it superannuation. So we should be clear that we would likely be a richer country collectively in New Zealand if all of the people who retired at 65 continued working till, say, 75 or older. That would make us have a larger GDP. But we've chosen collectively that the trade-off of being a bit poorer as a nation is worth it to allow people to stop working at age 65 if they choose to do so. We also made a very ch similar choice when we created the weekend. There's nothing inherent that says we should work five days and not for two. But that was a political battle that was won, as was the retirement age, fundamentally a choice. And in my view, those choices remain in the future too. And if we do see significant technological change that makes us wealthier, we may want to choose to focus a little bit less on ever-increasing income and a little bit more on increased leisure time. Now, when I describe these futures to people, what they tend to ask me is, which is most likely? Now, I think that's a reasonable question, but I think the real question is, what kind of future do we want? And perhaps more, most importantly, what are we willing to do and to trade off, because there are real trade-offs, to get to either of those futures? As I've mentioned, to overcome the challenges on the road to any of these futures will require effort, it will require tough choices, and in my view in particular, it requires starting to think about it and act on it now. Now, 88% of New Zealanders think that these new technologies do require careful management. That's a good start, I think, but we probably need to do even more than careful management. We need to proactively shape the kind of technology we develop and adopt, not just deal with what arrives, and we need to be proactive in shaping our society and our economy so that the vast majority of New Zealanders can benefit from the new technologies that are coming rather than having them as a source of threat or something that is forcing them to lose out. Now, the danger is, and I think this is essentially the path we're on, is that if we don't proactively shape the future and instead drift rather unthinkingly into it, there is a third possible future lurking, and that's a future of much greater inequality, of underemployment in particular, with people unable to get as many hours as they'd like to work, and of insecure, intermittent work without permanent contracts, uh, and of families in the end, as a result of all of this, struggling to make ends meet. Not to mention, I should add, the risk of overheating, flooding, and extreme weather thanks to climate change. So before I end, I think I should say what my own preference is. It's all very well putting these up there and just sort of leaving it floating, but I do believe that some version of Paul and Natia's world, that's a world in which work continues to play a central role in our lives, is what we should be aiming towards. 
I say that for the income that it provides, both to us as individuals, but also to the country to do things that we care about, uh, for the social connection that it brings, and for the sense of meaning, purpose, and flow that work at its best can provide. I think we do need to recognise, of course, that work is deeply imperfect still for many people in New Zealand. And so the urgent task ahead of us, I believe, is both to overcome those challenges to building a world of continued high employment, uh, but also to figure out a way to make work work better for more of us. And there's no doubt that that will be a really challenging process. Still, I should say, mine is just one perspective. Uh, my question, I guess, for you all is what kind of future of work would you like to see in New Zealand? And in addition to that, perhaps, and most importantly, what would you be willing to do to help us to get to one of those futures? Thank you very much. Um, the UK, if, if you talk about the, the types of innovation that have happened, the use of technologies, it's actually moving very quickly at the moment. For example, if you order something online before 10 o'clock at night, it arrives the following morning before 12. Right? So we're seeing amazing logistics going on. There's warehouses everywhere. And what's happening is that we're seeing lorries moving during the evening to move things into warehouses where they're not there. But the following day, the gig economy takes over. So then we've got individuals with their own cars all working as distribution workers. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's very interesting to hear. And I mean, I do think there's likely to be some of those changes in New Zealand as well. I mean, I think one of the areas where automation tends to go faster is... Uh, in kind of routine movement. And so that can include some manufacturing, it can also include warehouse work uh, for delivery. As you mentioned, a number of those warehouses you know, becoming automated increasingly. Um, I think, though, it is worth keeping just some kind of perspective on this. So in the US, which is one of the world's most developed e-commerce markets, only about 10% of purchases are made online still. You know, there has been in the US growth um, in employment because of some of the services that come with that. So there's a lot of growth uh, in delivery and logistics. They aren't always the best-paying jobs. You alluded to one of those areas where there is high demand for workers, and that's in kind of care and medicine. And I think we've already seen quite clear trends in a number of rich countries that it's those kind of sectors that see you know, substantially growing employment. The big challenge when you get to that point, though, is how do you actually facilitate that transition? And can you get people who've been used to doing one kind of job to make that move. What I'd really like to ask is, you mentioned the 28% of schools that didn't teach um, competencies. I'd like to know what your view is on how we could um, embrace those competencies for our young people more and which ones you think are important. You know, I think that this is a kind of a really persistent problem in New Zealand. Unequal educational outcomes and unequal quality of education in New Zealand is not news, particularly. And so I think I shouldn't be glib and sort of say that I've got the solution. Lots of people have thought about this and struggled with it. But I do think in some instances uh, there is an aspect of funding to it. Um, and I think there's also a, a kind of an extent to which we are happy to look at our pretty good rankings and in some international surveys of average student outcomes and say, oh, well, we're doing pretty well in the PISA tests and mathematics and reading. We are declining on those, I should add, but we're still pretty high. Uh, and kind of letting the average mask that longer tail. Um, and so I do think there's kind of a question of funding and a question of emphasis. But then on the, on the issue of which 
pieces uh, for me. This is really challenging. I think that in education, when it comes to the future of work, there's a real temptation to sort of focus really on the tech side. And so to say what we need is for everyone to be able to just kind of code the latest language and we'll be in great shape. And I do think that there's no doubt that kind of coding and technology uh, are going to be more important, remain important. We probably underdo those at various levels of education. But coding languages and a lot of the technical aspects of where sort of frontiers of technology are change very quickly. So that's quite hard, and we need to be very close to kind of market demand. So we do need to do all of that, but we, I think, at risk in the education discussion around the future of work of focusing only on that. And actually, there's also very good evidence, I think, that skills like working in teams, uh, leadership skills, empathy, how to deal with people that are having difficulties, are going to be really fundamental skills as technology develops, because they're the human skills that aren't going to be automated anytime soon. And those kind of skills are in, the, are in many cases built into our curriculum, but not always implemented. So more work with, of students in groups, more having to deal with kind of complex situations that bring in uh, kind of different sources of information, combining different subjects. All of those things we could be doing, I think, quite a lot more of than we are today. And I worry that the discussion and the debate on future work tends to the kind of adding on a coding boot camp at the end of high school, rather than what is it that our sort of five and six-year-olds are learning about the importance of empathy, the importance of creativity, when both are actually important. One of them only tends to get the, the um, attention at the moment. And actually thought back um, to what uh, Professor Charles Handy was saying 30, was it 40 years ago, about people working um, 30 hour weeks, 30 weeks a year for 30 years. And actually the, the, the minuscule progress we've made towards that has got nothing to do with technology, it's got nothing to do with economics, it's all social and cultural. Um, uh, the societies are much more productive than we are, people don't work any less, they probably work more. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a fascinating point. So I, in the book, I looked at, in New Zealand, the kind of trends of working hours over time. And there's a very, very gradual decline that's actually flattened off in the last decade. So, but in that time, despite our relatively weak productivity growth, we have got quite a lot wealthier and quite a lot more productive. And a sort of straight economist answer would be saying, well, we chose to want to be richer, so we kept working longer hours to be paid more, rather than choosing to have some of that as leisure time. But I think that ignores how difficult it is for people to say, well, I'd like to go down to a four-day week. You know, to be able to do that, you need a very understanding employer, and most people perhaps don't have that. And so I think, you know, if we did want to move into that direction, and I think, you know, a less radical version of this sort of scenario I talked about is, is potentially quite realistic, um, I think there are a lot of things that could happen in terms of policy that would facilitate that. So what can government do to support businesses to say, this is something that we think is important, encouraging and allowing and supporting more flexible working hours that could have more people doing uh, a bit less work, um, but the economy is still running in broadly the same terms. So I think that there's an element of choice, and we have to admit that many people do continue to work because they would like more income more than they would like to have the extra day off a week. But others, I think might like to have that time off and just find it institutionally really hard to, to make that change. And I think we could look at making that a lot easier. Governments do not have the capacity or the will 
um, to do anything. We have a vastly unequal society. It's not productivity-oriented. It's a complete stage one economics joke. It's simply who has the economic power, who makes the decisions. You know, making these changes is really, really hard. And how do you actually achieve it? Yeah, well, look, fair enough. I mean, I, I agree with much of what you say, although not all. I do think there has been some progress on, on this. So, I, actually, when I wrote the book, there's already stuff in it that's out of date, I'm afraid, but you should still definitely get a copy. Uh, one, of, uh, one of those things is that I said we should uh, index benefits um, to wage growth or inflation, and they, since I wrote it, that has happened. And so I think there are some steps, you know, that's, and, and I totally agree that these are big challenges. But, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, superannuation was indexed to wage growth, but benefits weren't. And so the difference between what you got as a retired person and what you got if you were unemployed was really very substantial, or below a certain income level was really very large. And so there is sort of gradual steps on this. I think we are struggling, frankly, to deal with housing and infrastructure. And I think that's an area where, in a way, we have been talking about it for a long time. And I think we fail to link this up with the future of work discussion, but it is really very fundamental uh, that people being able to get to these places of work matters tremendously. And right now, if you lose your job in the Manawatu, let's say, and a job with a similar set of skills is available in Auckland, the chances of you being able to, if you own a house, sell up that house in the Manawatu and purchase somewhere within commuting distance or pay for the commute in Auckland you know, is extremely unlikely. So I think that's, you know, and I, there, are, there have been well-noted and I think clear missed policy opportunities to do something about that. I would, though, just come back and say, how do you get it done? I mean, look, I'm unfortunately in a position to write books at the moment and not to do anything much beyond that. Um, but I do think that you know, our government does, in New Zealand, not just this one, but many, do gradually make progress on this. It's slow, it's imperfect. I would say, though, it's a lot better than the progress being made in some countries in terms of the direction of, of travel, at least. Uh, and I think that part of what I hoped to achieve with the book was to get people uh, annoyed enough to try and put some pressure on a government to do more. So right now, the Productivity Commission um, is taking submissions on its reports on the future of work in New Zealand. They've had five interim reports, which are well worth a look, um, and they've got a final report coming out shortly. And, you know, submit. Um, and they say a number of, I think, quite striking things in there, which you know, will go to Grant Robertson and the rest of it. So I think we should not be too fatalistic yet, uh, but I don't want to pretend it's, it's easy.